morning. Good to see, good to see all of you this morning. My name is Jeff, if we haven't met yet. Uh, and I uh, was thinking, uh, I was thinking about a movie, which will make more sense at the end of the sermon, but I'll start with it. I, I graduated high school in 1997, and so my library of movie memories is dominated by that period. I'm sorry. But one of the movies that came out in 1997 of all years was a movie many of you have probably seen, though probably not all of you. It was a movie called Men in Black. It starred Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. It was about a super secret organization that was keeping the earth safe from aliens. And part of the fun, we'll we'll come back to the ending of this movie later in the sermon, but part of the fun of the movie is Will Smith does not know, as most people don't know, that aliens are among us in the movie. And so part of the joy is watching Will Smith have to rethink everything. We join him as he revisits what he thinks he knows and realizes that there's a whole layer he's never seen that's actually been there the whole time. And even some humorous things about him guessing which human is the alien and finding out it's not actually that's a human, the alien, somebody. I mean, it's just like a fun... It's a fun movie, and you're invited into the story if you journey with them. Well, the the author of Hebrews, I mean, it's a a literary technique, if you will, and the author of Hebrews is doing something very similar, and we're going to ramp it up uh, these next few weeks as as we read these next few chapters. But the author is inviting us back to stories we already know in the Old Testament, stuff we're familiar with, but he wants us to look at it afresh. He wants us to reconsider some of the things that have been there the whole time, to see things we didn't see before. Of course, we're not looking for aliens. That's a fun fictional story. What we're doing is looking for Jesus because he is reality. (laughs) But we don't always see him. And so he's bringing us back into the Old Testament story, but he wants us to see Jesus. Maybe we read past him the first time through. And I've been talking about this in character Melchizedek. The author has been alluding to him since chapter, well, talking about him since chapter five, but we haven't gotten to him. Now we're finally there. We're going to do Hebrews chapter seven today. But before we do, I want to read to you. So Melchizedek, part of what's fun about Melchizedek is he only shows up in two places in the whole Old Testament. Some of you know this, but if you're here for your first time this Sunday, He's in Genesis 14, just a few verses we're going to read. It fits on one slide. We'll read it. And then he shows up in Psalm 110, verse 4, this verse that's been repetitive through Hebrews. Psalm 110 is kind of the grid that the author is using. But let's just read. the. I want you to see the Genesis 14 account, even though uh, Hebrews is basically going to repeat everything I read. I just want you to see it yourself. Uh, chapter 14, verse 17, Abram, it's before his name has been changed to Abraham, he has just uh, rescued his nephew Lot, who had been kidnapped by raiders. After Abram returned from his victory over Kedor Laamor and all his outlies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. Here we go, verse 18. And Melchizedek, the sentence is incredible. <laughs> Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God most high, brought Abram some bread and wine. Let me just, we'll keep reading, but let me just point out that this this sentence is loaded. First of all, Melchizedek in Hebrew is basically a combination of two words, Melech and Zedek, king of righteousness. So his name means 
king of righteousness. That's who we're introduced to. And we're told he's the king of Salem, or you could say the king of Shalom, the king of peace. (laughs) So he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. And uh, scholarship would would agree across the board pretty much that this Salem is Jerusalem. (laughs) So you've got the king of righteousness and the king of peace coming out of Jerusalem, and he is a priest of God Most High. So he worships the same God Abraham worships. But we've just, in the story, we've met Abraham. God is revealing himself to Abraham. He's doing something new through Abraham. And here's somebody we've never met before who's worshiping the same God that Abraham knows. And he doesn't just worship this God. He's already a priest. <laughs> in fact, what's so interesting this is the first place in the Bible the word priest even shows up. I mean, it's just... Who is this king of righteousness, king of peace, king priest in Jerusalem who's blessing Abraham, you know, worshiping God? And you can't help but miss the meal either. I mean, you can't help but miss the meal, right? Bread and wine. I mean, God's God's had some things on his mind for a long time. We'll just say that, right? Verse 19, Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high creator of heaven and earth. And then verse 20, which I actually think is interesting for what we have been doing in Hebrews. And, and blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. So the two main verses that the author of Hebrews is kind of riffing on all the way through are Psalm 110.1 and Psalm 110.4. And Psalm 110.1 is where it begins, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies a footstool under your feet. I mean, you just see the echoes and the connections and it's what's going on that's connecting these two passages of the Old Testament that are separated by thousands of years from Abraham to King David. So there's the blessing and then it ends with this, and this is important as we get into Hebrews, and Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. Basically, Abraham pays a tithe to this priest. All right, so that's Genesis 14. I wanted you to see it. You could say, the one who is righteous by faith meets the king of righteousness, right? That's what happens. But let's then jump into Hebrews 7. We're going to work our way through these verses. And we'll start with the first three. And and it's going to be repetitive. And it feels, the the chapter feels wordy, right? Because he's packing a lot in. But it's not really a complicated argument. Don't make this harder than it needs to be. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. And when Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. We just read this. Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice, king of righteousness, same thing. And king of Salem means king of peace. Verse 3, we got to talk about this for a little bit, and it'll set us up as we keep going. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors. And the author of Hebrews is having fun. Well, there's no record of this, so there's no beginning to him, and there's no end to his life mentioned. We'll talk about what he means there. And then he says he remains a priest forever, and this is critical. It'll keep us focused this morning, resembling, resembling the Son of God. So what's he doing in verse 3 with this? No father or mother, no beginning or end. Well, he's just an astute Bible reader. And we're in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and these genealogies play a very important role in Genesis. 
Most of the people you encounter in Genesis, you know something of their genealogy, but Melchizedek just shows up in these three verses and then vanishes. <laughs> and so he's just playing with the narrative. It's, it's as if he has no beginning or end. Now, I wanted to say something about what these genealogies are doing, because it's important, again, to remind us of the big, big, big story and the big narrative. There's two main things I think the genealogies are functioning to do in the book of Genesis. The first thing they're doing is they're tracking our hope. (laughs) So Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden, a place of life and security and stability and abundance. But they sin. They don't trust God. They rebel against their maker, and they are exiled from the garden. And the question that echoes all the way through the Old Testament is, will we ever get back? Will we ever get back? Now, our hope is tied to Genesis 3.15, this this early enunciation, kind of the proto-gospel, if you will, that God is going, there's going to be an, an offspring of a woman who is going to be hurt, suffer, because his heel will be bitten by the snake, but he will crush the head of the serpent. And so it tells us at the very beginning, we should be reading the story and looking for two things, the offspring of the serpent, and the biblical authors are so creative in how they go about showing us uh, this person's snake-like. They're an offspring of the serpent. In fact, even as it relates to Psalm 110, I will say, We're looking for someone, this this offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so you have this fascination with heads being crushed throughout the Old Testament. Why is that? Because we're longing for this prophecy to be fulfilled. That's why, you know, the Messiah comes from the line of David. Why does the author go out of his way to tell you David didn't just kill Goliath with a stone? He cut his head off. (laughs) Well, he's looking back to this Genesis 3.15, one would come, right? And even if you on your own, I'm not going to read it this morning, but on your own, you read all the way through Psalm 110, you get to the, the end of Psalm 110 and they're looking for heads to be crushed, right? Because it's, it's leaning into this prophecy, the end of evil, right? And the end of our enemies. And our ultimate enemy, it seems, is death, right? That's the other role that these genealogies play in the, in the story of Genesis. Right out of the gate, we're in, you know, you meet Adam and Eve, they're exiled from the garden. In Genesis chapter 5, I mean, we're at the beginning. We just get this genealogy, and it's this person was born, lived this many years, and died. And that's the point. Lives, dies. Lives, dies. Lives, dies. And you're really supposed to notice it because this guy named Enoch gets planted in Genesis chapter 5. And Enoch... There's no mention of him dying. He is just taken up with God. That's why you have other like literary works, especially in Second Temple Judaism in the days of Jesus, fascinated with Enoch. Some talk about Melchizedek, but not like our author of Hebrews does. But, but these are just interesting characters. They just show up in a few verses. There's something fascinating about them. And I think what Enoch tells us early on in the biblical narrative is there is a way to live that doesn't end in death. It seems to only have happened for Enoch, but, but there is, everyone else dies. For the rest of us, it ends in a funeral, <laughs> which I know it's Valentine's Day, but we have a different calendar in the church. But that's what we'll be talking about on Ash Wednesday, right? We are going to talk about our mortality. But the author of Hebrews is aware that in Genesis, this, this death has entered the story. What does Paul say? The wages of sin is death. 
And death becomes this enemy, and the, the, the ultimate enemy in the biblical narrative that Adam let loose as a monster. And you can, and we'll come back to this idea, this monster who is stalking us. This monster who wants to devour us, swallow us up. Death was not there in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. We brought death into the world. <laughs> death was not. So, so what happens you, you want it in Genesis 3 with the offspring of the woman. You want it when you read about Enoch. We want a new beginning. We need a new beginning. <laughs> We've brought death into the world. And death is our ultimate enemy. We need, we need a new beginning. So that's kind of the background, I think, in some of what he's talking about in verse 3. The other thing that he says, and I, I just want to reiterate this. He says that Melchizedek remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Let me just remind you that, that though Melchizedek is a fun figure, we aren't learning about Jesus so that we can figure out Melchizedek. <laughs> Melchizedek is someone who comes along that the author of Hebrews says, well, we'll look at Melchizedek because we're still learning about Jesus. Don't get the order wrong. <laughs> And Melchizedek, and this is where it's even, this is some of what I'm talking about that the author is inviting us to do. If you and I sit down with our Bibles and start in Genesis and read all the way through, chronologically, on our first read, we're going to get to Melchizedek long before we get to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, by the time you get through the whole Old Testament, you may have even forgotten about Melchizedek because he's such a small character at the beginning of the story. But what the apostles, what Paul, what, what, what these New Testament authors are doing is they're like, oh, but the resurrected Christ has come. The Messiah has come. The offspring of the woman has come. He has dealt the decisive blow. Yes, he's been injured. Yes, he has suffered. Yes, his heel has been bitten by the snake. But he's crushed that head. Amen. And now there's life and there's hope. There's joy because of what Jesus has done. But, but don't get this confused. Jesus is not in the image of Melchizedek. I don't care that Melchizedek comes first, the author says. Melchizedek is still in the image of Jesus. And if you go back with fresh eyes, you'll see that Jesus is actually all over the place, right? He's the glory of God. He's the ultimate altar. He's the temple. He's the priest making the sacrifice. He's the sacrifice himself, right? He's, he's the true king. He's everything that this has always pointed to. So don't get that order confused. All right, let's read a few more verses. Verse 4. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Now again, I've been saying this all the way through. We're comparing the old with the new, but we're never putting the old down. We'll be honest about the old, but the old, everything that God does for his people is a gift. And it's good. So... So consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. We read that. Now the law of Moses required that the priests who are descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel who are also descendants of Abraham. So again, that's wordy if you're new to the biblical story. Levi is the great-grandson of Abraham, all right? And then Moses is going to come later. Moses and his brother Aaron are in the line of Levi. They're descendants of Levi. But, but he's, he's kind of walking through. He wants to talk about the priesthood of Jesus and how it's superior to the priests of Levi that are always operating at the temple in Jerusalem. 
But he doesn't want to put down the priesthood of Levi, so he's just going to a story before them to talk about how what Jesus is doing is better. I mean, that's the whole point of what he's doing. Verse 6, but Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, right? He's his, Levi's great-grandfather meets Melchizedek. He collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek then placed a blessing upon Abraham. You read it in the story. The one who had already received the promises of God. Abraham's amazing. <laughs> and without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. Again, it's pretty straightforward. He's just reading Genesis 14 and saying, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. He's greater. And then he's going to go a little farther. The priests who collect tithes are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. Again, he's just, he's just re referencing this fact that Melchizedek does not show up in a genealogy telling us when he was born and when he died. He just shows up and vanishes. He's just having fun with the narrative. In addition, we might even say that these Levites, the ones who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. <laughs> Again, don't go crazy with this, but he's just saying, for although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. He's just, again, Levi's the great-grandson of Abraham. And so he's just, in some way, shape, or form, he's just saying he was in Abraham paying a tithe to Melchizedek. He's, this is the argument. It's, again, a little wordy, but it's pretty straightforward. Verse 11, I'll read, and then, then we'll, we'll make a few more comments here. So if the priesthood of Levi on which the law was based, and he's talking about the law as it relates to everything going on at the temple, the priests and the sacrifices and all of that, if that could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? Again, he's back into Psalm 110, verse 4, which, which he'll quote again in a few verses. But in Psalm 110, verse 4, here this, this anointed one, this one who the enemies will be put under his feet like a footstool, is being declared by oath as a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, and he's just raising the question as a challenge to make you rethink things. Well, if the priesthood of Levi was all we needed, then why did God do this? Why does he appoint someone else according to a different order or a different Levitical system? What is he doing? <laughs> and there are a, a variety of ways we could talk about this, and actually I think our language will probably shift over the weeks ahead as we read more and more. But let me just say it this way for now, and then as we keep reading, I want to say it now, and then as we keep reading, hopefully you can hear like reinforce, reinforcing what I'm saying as we read through the letter. But let me say it this way, what God gave us as gift in terms of the Levitical priesthood and everything happening around the temple, what God gave us as gift couldn't do all that God wanted done. In other words, it wasn't designed for that. It couldn't of itself accomplish God's design, but it was needed to lead us where we needed to be. That's why Paul calls it a tutor. It was a gift. It was good. It was needed, but it was never intended to do the whole thing. He uses the language of perfection or completion. 
And one of the ways of talking about the law is that the law allows us to tell the truth about who we are and what we've done. It's one of the things the rhythm of the law allows us to do. So I don't know, maybe this is a silly metaphor, but I was thinking about it this morning. So, so some of you are going to end up, not all of you, but some of you are going to end up at someone else's house tonight to watch a football game, right? It'll be a party. And many of you who attend someone else's house, you're going to bring something delicious to share, right? So, so a bunch of us are going to end up at someone's house and we're going to be watching either commercials or a game. You get to choose which one, right? But you're going to head to the table at some point to eat food. Now imagine that you look at the table and somebody has brought a plate full of darkness and it's death, right? And imagine, you know, what do we do with death? This is one of the reasons we're going to do an Ash Wednesday service, right? We, in our culture, we don't talk about death. We don't address it. So for the first half, we're all going to ignore that it's even there. But by the second half, someone is going to have the courage to say, who brought death? To the party. And if you and I are formed in modern day Babylon, we're all going to stay silent. But part of what's being said here is if we were formed by the gift of the sacrifices being brought to the temple, we would be used to telling the truth about who we are and what we've done. Our sin has brought death into the world, right? Just killing animals left and right. And if you and I have been formed by the Levitical priesthood, we would say, I did. And maybe all of us would, you know what, we, we all brought death. This is what we do as broken human beings. We bring death. So what's being said is the Levitical priesthood gives us language, opens our eyes. This is, this is who we are. This is what we've done. We are sinners and we have brought death into the world. But it can't bring life. The Levitical priesthood cannot bring life. It can only allow us to tell the truth about who we are and what we've done. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is we need something else. The Levitical priesthood was not designed to transform us. It was designed to lead us to the place where we could finally be honest about who we are. <laughs> I, I think that's what he's saying. And, and he's going he's gonna to say it more as we keep reading. But then he's going to, um, he'll keep saying it over the next few chapters as he, he goes deeper into what the Levitical priests are doing. Let's pick up in verse 12. And, and you're going to, so I, I try to explain it. So then as you hear the language, because it's wordy and it's dense, and you might need to go back and read this. I get it. But, but you'll hear what I'm saying. If the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. So the, what the priest does is bound up with what the law says. They're connected. They're together. And so if the, if the priesthood changes, then other things change. And he's leaning into a deeper conversation about the old covenant and the new covenant. For the priest that we are talking about belongs to a different tribe. We're talking about Jesus, whose members have never served at the altar as priests. What I mean is our Lord, Jesus, came from the tribe of Judah. That's where kings come from. And no, Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. So that's why Melchizedek is so cool. Jesus is from, a, he's, he's from the line of Judah, but his priesthood supersedes the priesthood of the Levit Levitical priests. This change has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. And I love this verse. I, I, sometimes I get, if you want to memorize a verse, I love this verse. 
Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi. No, no, no. He became priest by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. (laughs) Your translation may say an indestructible life. That's what we're going to land on this morning. Why is Jesus the great high priest? Because of the power of his life. He is just too much life. (laughs) And then he says in verse 17, the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We're back to Psalm 110. Let me say a little bit about this indestructible life and then we'll finish off the chapter. It's an indestructible life because it's a life of love. It's a life that comes through death and therefore cannot die again. This is why Jesus is a priest who comes from outside the loop, outside the order of things. He's doing something new. He's giving us that new beginning that I told you we know we've always needed. He's doing something we always knew we needed to be done, needed to be done, but we couldn't do it ourselves. Again, that's part of what the Levitical priests were teaching us. We need something done. We can't do it ourselves because we keep bringing death. And we need someone who doesn't sin, who has an indestructible life, right? That's why Jesus' life is indestructible. Even death can't undo what his life is. It can't undo what this life is because of the way Jesus lives it out. His life is just too much for death. We're going to talk about this. Death swallows Jesus, not realizing that the life that is in Jesus will swallow death, (laughs) There's too much of God's life going on for death to last. I've said this a few times. The infinity of God's life just exhausts the finitude of death. And what Hebrews is saying is death seems to be reality. But what happens with Jesus is constituting what reality is really. Jesus is, in a sense, making a new reality. I've said this a few times in the series as well. Nothing happens to Jesus except what he wants to happen differently for us. So Jesus goes head to head with death and allows it to do its worst to to him. I mean, that's in Hebrews. Like, Jesus really died. But as Jesus encounters death, he changes it (laughs) and overwhelms it with life. I'm asking us, there is no greater story. Our ultimate enemy dealt a head-crushing blow. All right, so how about um, these final uh, 10 or 11 verses here? And then I got a little fun. We'll return to men in black, if you will. Verse 18, yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. Again, that's what I've been trying to say. For the law never made anything perfect. It couldn't bring it to completion. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God because Jesus is a different priest doing something new, the new beginning we've always needed. And this new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants, again, Aaron is a descendant of Levi, brother of Moses, uh, they they, uh, became priests without such an oath. But in Psalm 110, right, there was an oath regarding Jesus. God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever. He keeps repeating this. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. So the old covenant was good. 
It's just Jesus is better. That's the theme of Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Verse 23, there were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, right, this indestructible life, this life that cannot be destroyed, his priesthood lasts forever. And you and I are meant to find so much assurance in that statement. So much confidence, so much security, so much stability, so much rest, so much hope. Here is a priest that will never, never cease to do what he does. Verse 25, therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. You can trust in this Jesus to save. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf, on your behalf, on my behalf. And by intercede here, I really think it's, it's this priestly function of being the place where heaven and earth are connected. Jesus is opening the gateway for those of us here on earth to enter into the true reality of heaven. Verse 26, he is the kind of high priest we need. Now, why? I mean, I, I said this already, but, but here the author said it. Because, because he is holy and blameless. He is unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike these other priests, those other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. That was the old system. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all. And that'll come up later in the, in the letter. When he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. That's the crucifixion. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, Psalm 110, God appointed his son with an oath. And his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. <laughs> and so even there, he's having fun. He started at the beginning of the story, Genesis 14, but he's going to end thousands of years later with David in Psalm 110. I mean, this is just, but again, Jesus is covering the whole story. It's all about, it's all about Jesus. The author is focusing on the eternality of Jesus' priesthood. He's the better hope. Now we have a priest who does not die. Jesus lives forever. He's never going to die. He's never going away. He will always be there for you and for me. And his covenant will not change. It won't go out of date. It will always be there. Rest in that. You don't have to keep looking. You found your home. Settle in. And enjoy Jesus. He's a different kind of priest. He's doing something new. He's giving us a stability, a rest we've always longed for. You don't have to wonder if it'll be there when you need it most. It will be. It will be. Jesus shares in our death. And in the deep mystery and wisdom of God, death would be defeated by death. This is something death did not understand. Something the principalities and powers knew nothing about. When Jesus was swallowed up by death, that would be the end of death. I started with the way I did, trying to tell you a little bit about what Genesis tells us. Death has a right to everyone that has sinned. That's the way the story unfolds. Everyone contaminated and infected by sin, death has a right to. Adam unleashed this monster and death stalks the land and gobbles up every single man, woman, and child. 
death has done this and has been doing this until it swallowed the one it had no right to. Death had a right to everyone except the one it had no right to, the one without sin, the one who is blameless, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you could say it this way, when death swallowed that one, death got ingestion. It couldn't digest that one. It wasn't supposed to have that one. It shouldn't have taken that one. Indestructible life. Death did not know that if it ate that one, it would be the death of death. And Jesus let death eat him up. And then Jesus did what only he could do. He blew death up from the inside out. Jesus presents himself and allows death to swallow him, but in his death, it's the death of death. There's your theology. Again, I think this is in the mind of the author of Hebrews, but let's fast forward to good 1997 movie making. I was going to show the video, but I still haven't fully figured out all the rules of live streaming, what we can and can't do. So you can, you can, you can YouTube... Uh, Men in Black final cockroach scene or something, and you'll, uh, you can watch this on your own if you're into gooey alien interactions, but I'll explain it to you with a little theological bent. At the, uh, as, the, as the movie unfolds, we, we get to journey with Will Smith as he experiences that there's aliens all around him and he never knew it, but of course we're drawn into the drama that an alien has come to the planet that's the worst of all, a bug. And in beautiful movie making, it's not just any bug, it is a giant cockroach. And we're told that wherever the bug goes, death and destruction are in its wake. At one point in the movie, Tommy Lee Jones says, with a bug in town, we'll check the morgues. I mean, there's even just good, it's good storytelling. In, in the course of the movie, this giant cockroach, which represents death, swallows a whole world, a whole galaxy, Orion's Belt, if you watch the movie, right? And in this climactic scene of the movie, Tommy Lee Jones actually provokes death in the form of a giant cockroach to swallow him up. Do you remember it? He's like, eat me! Eat me! You remember that? I love that scene. And the giant cockroach swallows up the Savior, who is Agent K, thinking that he's just destroyed another human being, but in fact, he had sealed his fate. I mean, let me just have some fun. Tommy Lee Jones is swallowed up. That's like Good Friday. You see him go down into the gullet of the giant cockroach. That's like Holy Saturday. But he doesn't stay there. There is this little beep from inside the giant cockroach. He looks down at his stomach for a second, and then boom, he just blows up from the inside out. Easter morning. Now, I'm not saying that's what resurrection looks like. (laughs) But I am saying that that is exactly what Jesus did to death. That's what an indestructible life does to death. Jesus goes down into death, but death has no right to him. And he blows it up. He he ends death from the inside out. 
right? And then the joy is that for those of us who believe in Jesus, and today's as good as any day to put your hope and your faith and your trust in Jesus. <laughs> to those of us who believe in Jesus, there is the promise of immortality and resurrection from the dead. Amen? <laughs> I thought it was worth reviewing that. It's the, it's the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, and we're going to go on a journey heading to Easter. <laughs> but I kind of like that. And, and even as we head now, we're going to head to communion. And there's a bunch of things we could say. I mean, one of the things that I think is really cool is that Jesus, I mean, again, in, in the masterful storytelling that is God and through the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, right? You and I practice once a week now. Every Sunday we gather for this feast. We gather to be blessed by this meal that isn't from the tribe of Levi and that priesthood. It's from a different priesthood. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus is tied to the priesthood of Melchizedek and Melchizedek blesses Abraham with bread and wine? It's almost like God knew from the beginning what he was going to do. Like he was always in control. I think he was, right? So as we head to communion, I'm going to try to get you a little excited. Permit me. But there's a, there's the Eastern Orthodox Church, there was a guy who preached 1,600 years ago, John Chrysostom. Uh, he was known as the Golden Tongue. Great preacher. And if I'm correct, every year on Easter Sunday, the Eastern Orthodox Church reads his sermon, one of his sermons from Easter Sunday. So I'm just going to read a little bit of, a little bit of it um, as we head to communion, and then we will, we will receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus with this in mind, this indestructible life. This is what John Chrysostom, here's how he begins. Are there any who are devout lovers of God? Let them enjoy this beautiful, bright festival. Are there any who are grateful servants? Let them rejoice and enter into the joy of their Lord. Let no one grieve at his poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one mourn that he has fallen again and again, for forgiveness has risen from the grave. And this is how he ends. Just hang with me here. Let no one fear death, for the death of our Savior has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. He destroyed hell when he descended into it. He put it into an uproar even as it tasted of his flesh. Isaiah foretold this when he said, You, O hell, have been troubled by encountering him below. Hell was in an uproar because it was done away with. It was in an uproar because it was mocked. It was in an uproar for it is destroyed. It is in an uproar for it is annihilated. It is in an uproar for it is now made captive. Hell took a body and discovered God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was overcome by what it did not see. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, hell, where is thy victory? Christ is risen, and you, O oh death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead, is become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen? Yes. yes.